In the name of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, amen. Don't you just love a good David and Goliath story? And today we have the original, the one that gives us the name for this whole type of story. And it's especially satisfying if you identify, as most of us do most of the time, with David, the heroic underdog. And identifying with him allows us to cheer when he threatens and kills Goliath. It allows us to overlook his violence and overlook his own unsavory behavior when he becomes king himself. Indeed, if we're not careful, identifying with the underdog can become license for some downright ugly behavior. If you spent any time watching children's sports, you know what I mean. You've heard the parents on the sideline. Maybe you've been the parents on the sideline talking loudly about the other team how outmatched you all are, how much more aggressive they are, how mean-spirited their fouls are, how the refs are clearly on their side. And so it's that parent's duty to correct the refs and yell perhaps at other parents or even at children. Yes, it can be quite convenient to identify with the underdog, with David. But as you may have guessed already, I have sympathy for Goliath, too. Why? Well, for one, my baby brother is tall, really tall, about as tall as Goliath. The translation that Brad read measures Goliath at about 10 feet tall, six cubits and a span. Don't worry, my brother is not that tall. But the better attested sources, the better attested manuscripts, say that he was four cubits in a span, that is six feet nine inches. Well, my brother's six seven. When he was born, the story goes, the nurses were so surprised by the length of this baby that they rifled through hospital records to see if he had set a new record. And they determined that he had, at least as far as they could tell. Later, as a tall child, he was expected to play basketball and to be good at it, to be a champion, and he was. But he also played soccer and Little League, and those were not necessarily his sports. But still, he was the kid that other parents talked about on the sidelines. You could hear them complaining that he was clearly too old for this age bracket, making him out to be more of a threat than he was just because of his height, conveniently overlooking how awkwardly skinny he was at the same time, which to me always betrayed his age. I could go on and on about the challenges he faced, like finding clothes that fit or a bed he could sleep in without his feet dangling off, navigating ceiling fans, but you get the point. 
Being tall is not always easy, and it does not always make you mighty. But there's another reason I have sympathy for Goliath and I'm not so quick to write him off as a mean-spirited bully. I relate to him. In some ways, I want to be like him. I mean, did you get a load of all that armor? It's state-of-the-art stuff, the latest technology, iron. And it pretty much covers him from head to toe. And if that weren't enough, he's got a shield bearer to go in front of him. This guy's indestructible. But his armor's really heavy, too. The spearhead alone is 600 shekels. His coat of mail, 5,000 shekels. That's about 125 pounds. It's a lot to carry. It's a lot to carry. All this stuff that's supposed to protect him from being hurt or defeated. All this stuff that's supposed to protect his people, too, and make them feel safe and strong as he fights for them, as he faces danger, as he does their dirty work for them. When we hear about all that armor that Goliath hauled around, And when I hear how little good it did him, ultimately, I can see how absurd it is. But that doesn't stop me from wanting and wearing armor still. And it doesn't stop me from coveting other people's armor at the same time. We all do it, don't we? We all wear all kinds of armor to protect ourselves, to keep ourselves from being exposed, from being hurt, from being seen as we are, as if as we are somehow we're not okay. It comes in many forms, this armor that we wear, in the causes or the work or the knowledge or the relationships that we equate with our very identity or purpose. It comes in the exhausting pursuit of power, success, security, esteem, in the need to be needed or to be perfect, as if that could somehow shield us from the pain of rejection or correction. Then there's the armor that we, like Goliath, carry for other people. Or there's the armor that we, like the Philistines, expect others to carry for us so that we don't feel so vulnerable ourselves. You see what we expect of our leaders. We expect them to be perfect, to be changeless, to have everything figured out from the moment they step into some kind of leadership. But we expect not just our leaders, but also those closest to us to wear armor for us. As children, we may expect our parents to be invulnerable, flawless. And we may find ourselves so disappointed, even angry, 
when we realize they're not. As parents, we may be so determined to protect our children from the pain we experienced at their age. We may be so determined to see that they are happy and successful that we communicate to them that their failures or their pain scares us and hurts us. And what about men? That's a question that Brene Brown recalls a man asking her after she'd given a lecture on shame and vulnerability. And she had just finished signing books for this man's wife and daughters when he came up to her and said, what about men? What have you learned about us? She explained that she only studied women, to which he replied, well, that's convenient. Then, his eyes welling with tears, he told her that men have shame too, that men feel vulnerable too. But when they reach out and share their stories, he says, no one wants to hear it. Especially, he says, my wife and my daughters. His honesty opened Brown's eyes, and she realizes that she thought about the men in her own life. Holy moly. Those weren't her words exactly, but those are the words I'll use today. Holy moly. I'm the patriarchy. I am part of the patriarchy. Men, she says later, after expanding the scope of her research to include men, men, she says, hear us asking for their vulnerability, but are also very aware that we may act scared or resentful when they show their vulnerable side. They live under the pressure of one unrelenting message. Do not be perceived as weak. In other words, in the language of our reading today, be Goliath. It's Unfair to ask of anyone, of course, and I don't want to encourage that. But I do want to say, I recognize, I am aware, I am grateful for the men in my life who have done this for me. My father, my grandfathers, my husband, who have tried to be, who have been strong and protecting because that's how they say, I love you. But the good news is that Goliath is not the whole story. There's also David, this shepherd boy delivering food to his older brothers at the front when he hears Goliath threaten his people. And what really gets his dander up is he hears Goliath threaten his God. And so he volunteers to take this giant, this champion on. But when Saul sees what a small fry he is, he says, no, thank you. You see, Goliath is not the only one who has to negotiate what people assume about him because of how he looks. David, however, knows who he is. And he knows who God is. 
David knows that he doesn't need to be another soldier like Goliath. He needs to be a shepherd like David. His experiences have prepared him for this, and what's more, he trusts God will be with him, as God has been with him before. So he convinces Saul to let him go. Saul sends him out, but first Saul outfits him with the king's armor, the best in all of Israel. And who wouldn't want it? Well, David, that's who. Because when David puts it on, he sees that it's too big, it's too heavy. It's unwieldy. It's just not him. And it will get in the way of what he can do. And so David takes it off. David takes that armor off. And he picks up instead the tools that he's used to, the ordinary tools of his ordinary work, a staff, a sling, some stones, and the name of the Lord. And he fells the great giant Goliath with a well-aimed slingshot and a prayer. It is a great underdog story. Of course it is. But it's so much more, too. It invites us to do what David did. It invites us to begin to take all of that armor off, the masks and the roles and the people we hide behind, to give up trying to be who other people think you should be, and to allow others to do the same. It's an invitation to lean on God when you're feeling scared or weak or out of your league. There's nothing wrong with that. There's nothing wrong with feeling scared or weak. We all do at times. The question is, what do you do with your fear? You can step into your armor and load your weapons. You can run and hide. You can cast about for someone to shield you or to take responsibility for you. Or or you can turn to God. You can trust in God and in yourself and in what God can do in and through you. You can pull on real courage and show up as you are and let others do the same, and let your loved ones do the same. As we dig in deeper, as we trust more and more in God and in ourselves, we develop the courage to trust others also. We develop the courage to see through simplistic narratives and stereotypes and assumptions to the full humanity of others. As we grow in compassion toward our own weakness and failures, we grow in compassion toward others too. And we just might, we just might all begin to lay that armor down. 
Amen.